testing. Good morning, my name's Dieter, and I'm here to bring you the Bible reading this morning. Our reading this morning comes from Revelation, chapter 4, the first 11 verses. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with something sitting on it. Correction, someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Good morning, everyone. I am still Pastor Brendan, <laughs> slightly reduced. Um, let me, let me uh, circumvent um, some people's jokes they're already formulating. Um, my wife did not cut off my hair in my sleep and thus robbed me of my fantastic strength. Um, <laughs> it's come up before. I know some of you had that chambered. I could see it in your eyes. Um, no, this is, uh, this is both, it's, it's just cooler, it's lower maintenance, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm playing with it. Um, and also, um, in keeping with today's revelation topic, just as my uh, heavenly father has withheld his judgment, but uh, not for long, and I live in um, anticipation of that day, my earthly father has presently withheld his receding hairline, um, but not for long, <laughs> um, and I live in anticipation of that day. <laughs> So we'll get used to it. Um, I am Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be here with you guys, particularly if it's your first day here. And I don't know, but if you're here, then I would love to meet you after this if you're here for the first time. Um, we're continuing through our journey through the book of Revelation. Um, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about that because we've got a lot of stuff to get through. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us. And we just ask that you open up our hearts today to hear what you have to say and open up the words of your gospel to us. We ask that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, 
The Revelation of John, or the book of Revelation, is endlessly fascinating to read. There is no document like it in the world, either in scripture or in human history, um, because it is both uh, so bizarre and, and sort of shocking in its imagery, but it's also connected to the impeccable truth that Jesus represents. Um, and out of that pairing, you end up with something that is very difficult to grasp, is easy to grasp badly, um, but can't be dismissed as irrelevant or simply put to the side um, because it's so significant. It's hard to do anything about it, but it's much harder to ignore it without some kind of consequence. So we're carrying on in this series today, but keep in mind we're doing a low-resolution version of the uh, Revelation series. We're, we're covering the whole book in about five sermons or so, and if you'd like a more in-depth study of this book, um, if you would like to go chapter by chapter, I commend our website to you, because back in 2015, sort of November-ish, we were doing a Revelation series. We went through that, uh, rendered that chapter by chapter. That was good fun. Um, and so if you'd like to look at that, then I recommend that to you. But for now, we're looking at this book with some brevity. Um, and I'm, I'm going to give you so much brevity, it will make your head spin. Because we're going to try 14 chapters today. 14 chapters of the most contentious and strange um, chapters in all the Bible. And last week... Uh, Pastor Darrell talked about the seven letters to the churches. Jesus appears to John. Um, that's in chapter 1. There's this fantastic vision of what he's like. And um, Jesus commands John to make a record of these letters to, to go to these churches. And these are corrective letters for the most part or encouraging letters. Um, they're specific to the Christian communities they were sent to. But together they form a kind of a catalog of the best and worst features that churches can have. And therefore are very useful to us even now. Um, and that's in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Next week, we'll be looking at uh, the vision of Jesus riding sort of gloriously into the, the chaos of the end of the world um, and giving salvation and security to those who follow him. That's chapter 19. Um, and right now, in kids' church, they're looking at chapters 4 and 5 only. Um, the kids' church path through this is to 4 and 5, and then you kind of will skip over the particularly complex um, guts of the chapter and then go all the way to Jesus coming. Um, but that was an option for us, but I've never met a um, too much I could chew I didn't want to bite off. Um, I thought we'd try to go through the whole thing. Um, before we do that, though, I'd like to talk a little bit about the views on Revelation, though not in great detail there. Revelation is not a straightforward book. You probably already know this. Um, it's an apocalyptic vision. This is a very narrow category of literature. There's not a lot of them that we have around. They're a very particular kind of writing. Um, and it's, it's hard to decide what we are supposed to do with an apocalyptic vision with God's stamp on it. Um, because it's kind of a big deal as far as interpreting the book goes. Um, there's a great number of symbols to follow. And there's like talk, for example, of a great beast that comes out of the sea with uh, seven uh, heads and ten horns. And there's very few people who look at that and they say, well, this is about the revelation to come and therefore we can expect some kind of Godzilla-type monstrous creature um, to come out of the ocean that which people will worship in the, in the end times. Um, in fact, the, one of the angels speaks to John during this book and, and explains to him this vision and talks about how the heads represent kings and the beast itself is a king. Um, all that kind of thing. But what people do disagree on is how far do these symbols go before they become real? How much is symbolism and how much is supposed to be taken quite literally? Uh, are we supposed to be looking out for some formation of ten kings in the future that will cause havoc for the children of God? Or is the number ten itself kind of part of the symbol, an idea that all of the kingdoms of men are collectively going to become corrupt? Um, and that was just what we should expect. 
when we see, for example, a, a vision of a star falling from the sky and poisoning a third of the ocean, does that mean a meteor is going to fall into the ocean at some point in the future and make a third of it toxic? Or is that a, a maybe a less specific part of a grander vision of the earth and the heavens just shaking to pieces under the weight of sin? And saints can disagree on the specifics of this. And preparing for a series like this, I've had to think about my position a lot, and the truth is I don't know what some of those symbols mean. And I've become very skeptical of people who have very simple answers for what some of those symbols mean. What I do know that is Revelation is a template. It's at least a template. It's the arc of a story in which there is this building corruption and punishment and then a final great devastation and then a renewal that is more glorious than the destruction that came before. That's the story of Israel sliding downhill through its um, degradation of kings and the rejection of its prophets until they finally reject and kill Jesus but with Jesus rising again, Israel itself is reborn anew. It's the story of Jerusalem, the city of God's people at that time, compounded in their sin over and over again, um, finally to be smashed to pieces by the Roman Empire some 40 years after Jesus' birth, or after Jesus' death, I should say. But in this vision, there's a promise of a new Jerusalem waiting to replace it, even more glorious, better than ever. It's the story of the world and the universe as we know it and everything that we know. A creation that was once perfect and then fallen, uh, fallen from perfection one day to be wiped away and replaced with a beautiful renewed creation. And it's the story of every individual who seeks after the Lord. We know created for perfection and service but born into a broken world. Each of us who must one day surrender ourselves on our knees to God, dying to ourselves in that moment, knowing we rise again as a new person, to be completed and perfected again in the resurrection. And so Revelation, it seems so interesting to me because it's a divine compression of all these stories into one wild and epic vision. Now, some parts of that vision seem to be more concerned with one interpretation than others. Some seem to be more about the destruction of Jerusalem that is going to come, uh, that is going to come upon Jerusalem maybe a few short years after John receives this vision. Some of it seems to be more concerned with the end of the actual material world, the destruction of the land and the sea, even the sky. Still more seems to be more interested in the shadowy details we have about the war in heaven, about Satan's rebellion against God and his faithful angels, and the ultimate end that those traitors will go to, and then ultimately even a renewal of heaven along with earth, with its, its ranks of angels previously depleted by those traitors leaving, now replaced by uh, risen saints caught up into the glory of God. The final word is that everything, creation, the introduction of sin into the world, the suffering of mankind, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the wars and earthquakes that come after, everything that seems to us like the enormous backdrop of time and space on which all events in the world play out, all of that is part of God's ordained and contained plan. Even the evil that seeks to oppose God in this world is finally made into a fool in the last examination because the only thing that evil can do to hurt God is to inflict death on the people he loves and God has conquered death. And he's conquered it in such a way that he's made it what it was always meant to be, part of this, this glorious machine made of angels and events and stars and saints and heaven and hell and destiny. And into that machine goes mortal man in a world of God's creation, made to be perfect and good. And out the other side comes a new world, an immortal man, better than perfect, 
now called friends of God and brothers and sisters of Christ. And the final consummation of that effort, the final product that that machine makes, we'll see in a couple of weeks, but this week we're all about the roaring, grinding, fiery engine of that machine and everything that happens inside it. So in about one minute per chapter, uh, we're going to look at the chapters 4 through 18. This is the kind of thing where um, we're going to be moving quick enough that taking detailed notes is not going to be super necessary. If you're a very imaginative person, I encourage you maybe even to close your eyes and try and picture the events as John saw them, because they're pretty fantastic. Um, Otherwise, you could certainly take notes about which chapters seem interesting to you, or uh, there's part you don't understand and you'd like to chase on your own later. But we're going to move through them at a pretty cracking pace, so I guess we'll try. We begin with chapter 4, and chapter 4 is the moment where things become fully surreal for John. Uh, previous to this, he knows he was, he was on the Isle of Patmos in exile. This vision of Jesus came to him uh, with the lampstands and the stars and all of those things um, in Christ and all his glory. And Christ recites to him these letters he is to, to bring to the churches. But then he's swept up in this vision of glory. He sees a door standing open in heaven and a voice inviting him to see what must take place after this. He sees a throne and a vision of God on the throne and God surrounded by these distinguished elder saints with crowns on their heads, which they lay at the foot of the throne. There are four heavenly beasts with eyes all over their bodies, a symbol that these creatures as servants of the God who knows all things are witnesses to all things. Nothing is hidden from them. The 24 elders and the heavenly beasts are worshiping God together. And from the throne of God come these flashes of lightning and these peals of thunder. And John is witnessing the source of all power and authority in the universe. And the highest, wisest, most knowing elders of mankind. And the creatures most exotic and mysterious from the vaults of deepest heaven all recognize his supremacy and praise him together. Chapter 5 comes and introduces a dilemma. John sees a scroll in the hand of God on the throne. That scroll has writing on both sides and seven seals. Scrolls are normally written on only one side because if you open and close a scroll a lot and it's written on both sides, you wear out the other side because of the motion of your hands on it. Uh, The Greeks had a particular word for double-sided scrolls because they weren't used much just for that reason, for particularly special purposes. And it has seven seals on it. Each of these seals are from the hand of God. Uh, To want to open these seals, you'd need someone with a comparable authority to God to even think about opening this thing. It's closed with such authority and only an absolute authority equal to it can open it. And John, in seeing this, he weeps in the throes of his vision because no one on heaven and earth has the authority to open or read this scroll. But then he sees the lamb. A lamb there, mortally wounded, but standing and alive. It's a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Seven eyes because like the heavenly creatures, it sees all things, it witnesses all things. It has that divine nature. Seven horns because it has the authority to rule. This lamb, as a representative of the kingdom of earth and on behalf of all of mankind, goes to take the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne, the one at the head of the kingdom of heaven. And the elders and the creatures praise both of them because they recognize in that moment this is where the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth are merging to make the kingdom of God. Chapter 6 sees the opening of the first six seals on this scroll. And with the breaking of each seal, a new revelation pours out, often terrible in nature, and unleashes some kind of catastrophe on the world. The first four unleash the four horsemen on the world, these figures we've seen 
um, depicted in all kinds of uh, pop culture renditions now as they speculate about the end of the world. But they ride out uh, conquest, war, famine, and death, and they ride out with this power they've been granted to cause havoc in the world. And the fifth seal breaks, and that reveals these souls that are gathered under the altar of God. Who, these are the souls of the saints who have been slain uh, in defense of the word of God or for the sake of the word of God. And they're crying out to God for justice. They say, how long will you wait to avenge us, Lord? And these saints, they are given these white robes uh, of honor and glory. And they are encouraged but told that they're going to have to wait longer because there will be more saints that have to suffer and die before the time has come for justice. The sixth seal breaks and the whole world seems to come apart with that one. The sun turns black, the moon turns red, the stars fall from the sky. The sky rolls away like a scroll and all the mountains and islands are displaced and unmoored. All the people of the earth, from the kings to the slaves at that time, call out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne in the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand against it? They speak for that great part of humanity that reject God's authority but cannot reject his power. They call to the mountains to hide them rather than to God for mercy, choosing shame over humility as they will constantly do. Chapter 7 comes and we get not the breaking of the seventh seal right away but a break in the action. The sixth, between the sixth and seventh seal there's this delay and this is kind of a common theme in Revelation. The movement of seven things one through six, and then a pause, and then seven to complete it. In chapter seven, John sees four angels, and they are standing at the four corners of the earth. Usually that means the four compass points, north, south, east, west, where you'd identify winds coming from. And they're standing there, holding back the winds that would otherwise blow over the world uh, in that final destructive uh, blow, I suppose, um, to end this world that has already suffered so much. And another angel rises from the east and calls them to wait, to hold off, um, to desist until they seal the servants of God. They're to hold off this final act until the servants of God are given a seal, marking them with his authority and um, with his power and his protection particularly. This is the same kind of seal that was on the scroll. They're being sealed with that level of authority, which no one less than that has a right to impose on. They mark 144,000 individuals, 12,000 from each of the ancient tribes of Israel as a faithful remnant of God's people. And then, having seen this representation of Israel there, John looks and he sees the fruit of the Gentiles also gathered there, and he calls them a multitude beyond counting from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation worshiping the Lamb. Then chapter 8 comes, and that seventh seal is broken, and it's finally over. The world is ended, the vision seems to go into an intermission. John says there is silence in heaven for half an hour. And then the vision begins anew, renewed, almost starting again, overlapping with itself. This time it's a uh, renewal of the vision of devastation and salvation with seven angels with trumpets coming out, each of them prepared to sound their trumpet and each of those trumpets going to signal some part of the end. Another angel comes to the altar of God with a golden censer. That's the incense burner that you might see in uh, Anglican or Catholic churches spreading that incense around. Um, and it's filled with the, the prayers of God's people, like the smoke from the sacrifices rising up to God. But once the smoke from the altars of man is delivered to God's altar, then the angel puts the fire of God from the altar into the censer and hurls it down 
to earth with all the thunder and lightning and the earth-shaking power that begins this vision. The first trumpet begins to sound and the four... Um, the first four trumpets that sound, they all ruin the world by thirds. Um, the first burns up a third of the plants and the grass. Uh, the next hurls a, a great mountain into the sea and um, turns a third of the ocean to blood. Uh, the third sounds its trumpet and a star drops from the sky and poisons a third of the rivers and springs. Um, the final one uh, plays its, its trumpet sound and then it blacks out a third of the sun and the moon and the stars, reducing the light in the day and night. In chapter 9, the fifth trumpet blasts and gives a falling star, a fallen angel, the key to open the abyss under the earth, and out of that abyss pours a horde of hideous locusts with human faces and lion's teeth and scorpion tails to torment those on the earth who are not sealed with that seal of God. The sixth trumpet blasts and four angels are released who have been laid up for the purpose of devastating the world. And they bring with them an army of 200 million horsemen, monstrous as they are, and they bring fire and smoke and sulfur, and together that enormous army lays waste to a third of the world's population. And then John observes at the end of that chapter, the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons or their idols of gold. They did not stop their murders, their magical practices, their sexual sin, or their theft. The world is deaf to this alarm, no matter how loud or painful it is. And chapter 10 reveals to John a new angel, one with divine features, like that rainbow above his head that we saw on God on the throne, um, a face shining like the sun, legs like, fine, um, like fiery pillars. These are ideas and aspects that we see associated with the Son of Man, with Jesus in his glorious aspect, or the angel of the Lord, as we sometimes see in the Old Testament. But this figure comes and stands astride the earth and the sea. Um, and when he speaks, it says that he speaks with the voice of seven thunders, a fairly mysterious phrase, which I guess must mean he can identify seven voices speaking in the sound of the thunder. John goes to record this, and then the voice of the angel says, no, don't record these things. So we're not, we don't know what the thunders say. Something of a um, canalizing portion of scripture, but I guess something that God is withholding from us that perhaps we'll know when we get to ask him in person. The angel has a scroll in his hand where he stands astride the, the sea and the earth. And he swears to God that there will be no more delay, but soon the last trumpet will sound and the mystery of God will be accomplished. The voice of God speaks to John and says to take the scroll from the angel's hand. Kind of a, almost a replication of the act where the lamb took the scroll from the God's hand earlier on. But John takes the scroll and the angel instructs him to eat the scroll. Kind of a weird thing to do with the scroll, but the image of that is at least clear enough. He's to ingest it, to take it into himself. Whatever this scroll represents, this blessing, this um, authority passed from God, or perhaps just the revelation that is coming to him. He eats it, it's sweet in his mouth, but it turns sour in his stomach because the revelation he is receiving about this end is bittersweet at best. There's glorious portions, but there's no denying the terror that's falling on the world. In Revelation 11, John is told then to turn and to measure the temple of God, now finding himself in a vision of Jerusalem. 
This is a task he doesn't seem to complete before he's given more and more revelation. And he's told to exclude the court of the Gentiles from this measurement because the court of the Gentiles is already full and they are going to trample Jerusalem for three and a half years. This is a forecast of the destruction that's going to fall on Jerusalem very soon after this message. God appoints two divine witnesses as his powerful prophets on earth and gives them a great miraculous power so that they cannot be harmed by ordinary men and they can do all kinds of miracles like the prophets of old. They are fated not to be killed by men but by the beast that comes out of the abyss and then to be raised back to life and drawn into heaven at the same time that a great quake racks the rebellious city of Jerusalem. The seventh trumpet sounds, all of God's people and creatures in heaven praise him. Even though the the temple on earth is defiled and the city of Jerusalem is suffering judgment, the temple of God in heaven swings open, revealing the ark of God's covenant within. We see that God has not forgotten his covenant. He's elevated it to a heavenly place. So the heart of God is now in his heavenly temple in the new world he is making for us. But not in poor doomed Jerusalem. Revelation 12 comes and that telling of that story of the trumpet seems to be complete. Now there's a new scene. John witnesses a sign playing out in heaven unfolding like a story. There's a woman in labor being stalked through the heavens by a wicked dragon seeking to destroy her child as soon as it is born. The dragon is Satan. The child is Christ. The woman is perhaps a combined image of um, perhaps Mary and the people of Israel all at once. Um, The people who had the honor of being the bloodline through which Jesus would come into the world. God rescues the child to heaven and prepares a hiding place on earth for the woman and the faithful armies of God's divine angels drive the dragon and his rebellious angels out of heaven, drives them down to the earth. So now the dragon is frustrated and unable to attack the woman. He vents his fury on the rest of her children, those faithful ones who testify about Jesus in the world. Chapter 13, the dragon summons up his two greatest allies to help him in this dark purpose. They come together and work as kind of a warped parody of the Trinity. There's a beast that rises up from the sea that wages war against the saints of God and commands the loyalty of those who oppose God. And there's a beast from the earth who goes forth as a prophet commanding the worship of the first beast and demanding that the faithless be given a mark of their own a crude attempt to replicate God's holy sealing on his own saints. The conquered earth turns against the saints, begins to reject and despise them, refuses them aid, for they do not have the mark of the beast. Chapter 14 comes. John sees this heavenly scene with the lamb once again, the throne of God, uh, the chorus of elders and creatures in the 144,000. Now we start to see the city of Babylon And it's not completely clear where the vision about Jerusalem ended and Babylon begins. But we seem to move from the place where God's temple is. And now we are regarding Babylon standing for the city of of all mankind that rejects God. Um, Babylon as the the dying, corrupted civilization of man, worshipping the beast, opposing the city of God in heaven where the covenant is now located. Three angels come out of God's throne room crying out. One of them proclaims the gospel to the world, asking the world to follow the true God. The second warns that Babylon is fallen and therefore no one should try and treat it as a refuge from God's wrath. 
The third warns that those who take the mark of the beast will fall like Babylon will fall. Better to die faithful than to damn oneself by living faithlessly. John sees another movement in his vision. A son of man, that angel of the Lord figure, comes with a sickle in one hand and two angels beckoning him on to harvest the earth. And from that harvest he gains these grapes which are thrown into the winepress, which is called the winepress of God's wrath. And when these grapes are trampled, blood flows out of the press, overflows, and through the streets of the city as high, it says, as a horse's bridle. Chapter 15, John sees in heaven another sign. This time, seven angels with seven bowls, each of those containing a plague to be cast down on the earth. John sees the glorious dead praising God in the temple in heaven. The temple opens up again, and out come these seven angels And once they've come out, no one can enter that temple until the plagues are completed. Chapter 16 sees the plagues all poured out. They recall in some ways the plagues that we've seen on Egypt in the Exodus story, um, but they don't map exactly. So they're meant to allude to that, but not a perfect replication. The first plague releases sores and boils on those who worship the beast. The second turns the sea to blood, kills all life in the sea. The third poisons the rivers and springs, turning them to blood too. The fourth plague is poured out on the sun, which uh, seems to become flared up and even uh, oppressively heated and burns people on the earth so that they curse God but don't repent. The fifth angel pours out darkness on the world. And the sixth angel dries up the river Euphrates and sets the stage for the final battle of the armies of God and the devil in the battle of Armageddon. The seventh pours out his bowl in the air and says, it is done. And when he says so, God's lightning and thunder and the earthquakes resound, which always um, recall a specific movement of the Father God on his throne in this book. And the great city of Babylon with that is split into three. And all the cities of the Gentiles in the world are destroyed, it says. Yeah, reduced to rubble by the power of this shaking and thunder. And just as in the first vision with the seals, The islands and the mountains all seem to retreat and scatter away. The world comes apart at the seams and the people who remain are pelted with great hailstones but still refuse to repent. Then chapter 17 comes. The vision slows and John must be thankful because this has been a lot to take in. Uh, Chapter 17 has one of the angels who had one of the bowls of plagues take John into the wilderness um, to a smaller vision. This one of a a woman dressed like a prostitute with a sign that identifies her as Babylon the Great. And Babylon in turn stands for the sinful world at large that rejects God. And she rides upon a terrible beast like the one that came out of the sea. And the angel reveals what these things mean to John and does it in kind of a curious detail that I'll let you read for yourselves at some other time. But the short version of it is that Babylon stands for this violent and hostile world that rejects God And the beast is kind of an amalgam of the demonic powers on the earth that are seeking to destroy God's people and also the earthly kings and powers there that are compelled by and reinforced by that demonic power. Both the woman and the beast are doomed to destruction. And chapter 18 is the end of this sorrowful saga, of at least the, uh, the dark part of this vision, preparing to see in later chapters the final judgment coming in the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 18 is all declarations from angels and the voice of God in heaven condemning Babylon for what it's done. 
imploring God's people not to share in Babylon's sins, but to stand apart even at the risk of death because the doom that is coming for that city is too much for them to bear. An angel throws a boulder into the sea and declares that as simply as that was done, God will end this city, which represents the greatest opposition that man and the devil can combined muster against God. It will be cast down just so and become a paradise for scavengers. And the only hope in that city is the possibility of getting out. And next week we will see the final fate of the beast and the savior who deals with that beast. But for now, that's most of Revelation for you, a pretty quick flyover. It's not meant to be a coherent, singular, logical vision progressing from one item to the next. And if you try and take it that way, you end up with a fairly uh, confusing and and incoherent end. Um, You'll end up with a a world that has a sun that is both um, that is black and is also so hot it is burning everyone and also one-third dark and also invisible behind the darkness. It's obvious this is symbolism and not a specific series of necessary events. And honestly, it seems like this series of symbols is not just about what is to come. It's also a vision of the complete work of God from what has already been. Wars and famine and conquest, these things happen right now and they've happened for thousands of years. The people of God are being killed in the world right now and they have for thousands of years. The world is rejecting God and pridefully arraying itself against God even now and it has for thousands of years. And if these words describe specific future events, which they very well may, it's only an escalation of the events we already know and we see in the world today. We are living in this ending procedure. We are living in that pause between the sixth and the seventh seal while the angels hold back the winds that would end the world. This is a picture of a God who is six-sevenths done with the world that rejects him and rejects him and rejects him and kills his prophets and his people and his son. And he only delays for the sake of leaving no saint behind and calling all his people out of a sinful world that will one day finally be destroyed. There's some layering to this vision of the curses and plagues and destruction. They repeat like verses in a song with the same kind of shape to them, the same kind of sound. Um, But the, the chorus is the same. The power of God and his temple in heaven opened up to all who love him. The millions of multitudes of those who follow the Son praising God in heaven and the Lord Jesus, that heavenly lamb, for bringing them there by his blood. God's kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth will unite in God's power. And even the devil sees this and tries vainly to copy it, trying to bind up the earthly kingdom in the worship of false heavenly agents. But the true victor of this story is never in doubt. It was never a matched pair of good versus evil. It was always a story of one God who would always win and one foolish opponent attempting to damage that God, but only ultimately working through his plan. There's no specific takeaway here. There's no uh, specific way to render such a vision for an individual believer. Um, The matters are too grand and too cosmic to be individually applicable, but the grand cosmic assurances we get from this chapter or from these chapters, they are there for us and they've been there for Christians for 2,000 years. We know that suffering is for God's faithful, not a sign of God's disfavor. It's a sign that God's patience endures so that even more might be saved. 
and a world that rejects God and is hostile to his people, that's been around since the Tower of Babel, which then existed through to the kingdom of Babylon, and then that defiant spirit remains in the world today in this idea of Babylon as man's world rejecting God. But even in that world, people can be called out and be saved. And God calls out to them, particularly through the faithful gospel on the lips of his people. He calls out for them to come out of there because Babylon is fallen, don't remain in her to be destroyed. And all of us know people who remain in Babylon. And we must thank God that he is patient with them as he was patient with us before we came to him. And we must all pray to him that whatever part he has for us to play in the continual unfolding of his plan, whether that's to live peacefully or even to die badly, that he gives us the courage to do either one, knowing that he is Lord and that his purposes are being worked out and that the, the flimsy veil of death is not the end. In fact, it's really all that stands between us and being part of that grand multitude, standing before the throne of God amidst the creatures of heaven and the angels, praising the Lord for the things he has done. So, let's pray. Father God, we're reminded of just how supreme you are, not just above us, but how far above us you are, Lord, not just powerful, but how much more powerful than we can imagine. And we thank you, God, that you, the one who created the world and could destroy it just as simply, has time for us. And more than just time for us, that, Lord, you endure patiently as more people come to know you. And to behold a vision like this, Lord, with the stars falling and the world breaking apart, it reminds us that this world is a temporary place for us and we are not living for it. We are living for the next one. And we ask that you give us the courage to do what you would have us do in this life as we prepare for that next one and the heart and the conviction to call others out of Babylon and into the company of the Lamb. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.